The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It wasn't only necessary to get to a national cybersecurity strategy, so not an ONCD strategy, but it is necessary to actually now implement the strategy, give fuel to the strategy, because it we're really thinking about a digital ecosystem, right? And it's a digital ecosystem. Cybersecurity is not just a national security concern, but it's an economic opportunity concern. It is a concern of social justice. It's a concern of technological innovation. It's much bigger. We acknowledge that it's a digital ecosystem. And so we had to come up together with the problems and the problems that we're trying to solve and the solutions as articulated in the strategy. And we still have to be able to engage together to come up with implementation. Because a strategy, as you know, is only as good as its implementation and the resources that are posed for implementing. I'm Brian Cunningham. And I'm David Chris, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 10, 2023. Kemba Walden recently took over from Chris Inglis as Acting National Cyber Director in the White House. She had been Principal Deputy Assistant National Cyber Director after serving in multiple cybersecurity positions in government and in the private sector. We talk with Kemba about the challenges and opportunities of her new role, the recently released U.S. National Cyber Strategy, and the significant policy changes it announces, including ransomware, threats to our national and economic security from China, and a fairly long discussion of music theory as well. This is our second in a series of Lawfare podcasts with senior cyber officials. Up next will be our interviews with CISA Director Jen Easterly and NSA's Rob Joyce. It's the Lawfare podcast, March 10th, Kemba Walden. As I'm sure you know, we asked your predecessor, Chris English, about his proudest achievement at the Office of the National Cyber Director, and he cited the team that you all had built, starting with you. So big shoes to fill, but he has great confidence in you. And we want to get right to the new national cyber strategy in a minute. But first, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your journey to the ONCD? Absolutely. I'm happy to do that. And thank you for inviting me to, to speak with you today. This is, this is an important audience, and I'm glad to have the opportunity to talk with you. So yes, Chris had some extraordinary shoes. I have my own shoes. They're cute. They're smaller. <laughs> but we ran this organization together, shoulder to shoulder. He was extraordinarily generous. I left me with an extraordinary staff. It's almost embarrassing how rich I am in terms of human capital. Uh, but he came to me. I was perfectly fine in, uh, at Microsoft. 
And he came to me asking me to be his second in command the day after Russia invaded Ukraine. So February 25th. And I couldn't, he made a proposition and I couldn't say no. So I was a part of a startup. I started up the counter ransomware program at Microsoft. I was there at the start of CISA in 2018. And he gave me the opportunity to, to be in a new startup in a significant way, working with him shoulder to shoulder to lead the organization, to establish the organization in the White House, and the opportunity to make a significant difference in my own way on moving the needle in cybersecurity. So I've been in the security business for a while. My background is not intuitive, but when Chris and I make decisions, when we made decisions together, when we brought our own experiences and solutions to the problems, we often ended up in the very same place and perhaps even in a better place than if either of us had come to the solution alone. And that's the culture of our staff. We are all here. We are, we're all loyal to the mission. We believe in what has now been captured in the strategy. And our diversity of experiences in this office get us to an extraordinary place as we move forward, as we think about how to move the needle in cybersecurity. And we've sort of, I think, I hope, infected the rest of the cybersecurity community in the same way so that we've been able to leverage the expertise and, and experiences of our stakeholder community. And that includes not just large enterprises, but civil society, academia, the public other members of the public sector, the private sector, our international partners, so that the strategy that you have before us reflects really a diversity of perspectives all driving in the same direction. Yeah, the, the strategy reflects a i think really an unusual amount of outreach to the private sector especially for an office that's located in the white house when i was in the national security council staff we did not have that level of i would say not operational but tactical level engagement with with private stakeholders that that, that is something of an innovation and it seems like it's worked out well for the strategy you know, it has, and it is an innovation coming out of the White House. You know, you don't normally see the National Security Council, and for good reason, often really engaged at that problem finding sort of level, right? That is new and novel. It wasn't only necessary to get to a national cybersecurity strategy, so not an ONCD strategy, but it is necessary to actually now implement the strategy, give fuel to the strategy, because it we're really thinking about a digital ecosystem, right? And as a digital ecosystem, cybersecurity is not just a national security concern, but it's an economic opportunity concern. It is a concern of social justice. It's a concern of technological innovation. It's much bigger. We acknowledge that it's a digital ecosystem. And so we had to come up together with the problems and the problems that we're trying to solve and the solutions as articulated in the strategy. And we still have to be able to engage together to come up with implementation. Because a strategy, as you know, is only as good as its implementation and the resources that are posed for implementing. Kemba, did your background at Microsoft and in the private sector generally give you a kind of a leg up in working on those partnerships and devising the strategy with those partnerships in mind? 
You know, I'd like to think so. Hindsight is twenty twenty, as they say, right? So uh, I mentioned, I alluded to you earlier that Chris Inglis and I had very different backgrounds. But I've been in security for a while, but from a different place. Uh, and so, yes, my experience at Microsoft starting up a new uh, counter-ransomware program in the Digital Crimes Unit in a large company as a cost center, right? So I wasn't building anything. I was a cost center, but I was building trust. Coming at uh, to ONCD from that perspective, I think, was helpful. But I also, before I even got in the, in the security business, before I was a national security lawyer, I actually was part of a nonprofit working in Tbilisi, Georgia, developing communities. Um, and quickly learned at that moment in time, that was decades ago now, so this is Shepard Nazis, Georgia. I realized at that moment in time that there's only but so far I can go developing communities when these communities did not feel safe. And so that's the throughput of my career. So even, even that nonprofit experience doing good things out there in the world informs how I think about cybersecurity and how the culture of cybersecurity has evolved in our office. Um, and throughout the, the community. So, yes, this, I guess that's the long answer to your question. So, yes, my experience at Microsoft, but even as far back as my time straight out of grad school in Tbilisi, all of those experiences contribute to how I think of cyberspace and cybersecurity. So we definitely want to get your thoughts, Kemba, on the new strategy since it's now out in the world. It's been described by armchair quarterbacks like me as revolutionary in a couple of ways. And, and I really, I really believe it is. Um, and I want to drill down into a couple of specific things, but can you just sort of talk about what you think are the most important big policy shifts that are embodied in the strategy? Absolutely. So let me just set this up for you. So the focus of the strategy, if you read between the lines, are small communities, individuals, people who use cyberspace. That's the focus. And my focus there is to make sure that those individuals, those communities are able to thrive and prosper in our digital ecosystem, full stop. At its core, to get there, everything that is articulated in that strategy at its core involves collaboration in some form, right? So those two premises in mind, the two themes, and I think you've, you've pretty much hit the nail on the head, at least in conversations I've heard you had before in some of the lawfare podcasts and, and, and publications. But the two themes are lifting and shifting cybersecurity risk off of those who are not in a position to buy it down, off of those who are most vulnerable, off of individual users, off of small communities, shifting those to those that are most capable of buying down that risk, right? So that we are rebalancing the burden for security on the one hand, making what we have defensible. But then what do we do with that residual risk, knowing that we're never going to get down to zero risk, knowing that even if we make what we have extraordinarily defensible, there's going to be some cybersecurity risk that, that survives. So the, the second piece of this is how do we invest in long-term resilience? And not just resilience in the technology, but resilience in the people, the people that are in cyberspace, people who are the focus at the bottom of this strategy and the roles and responsibilities, right? So these are our two fundamental shifts. It's a thought process with the framing that cyberspace is really the technology, the, the gizmos, 
I'm a Gen Xer. I'm going to use the word gizmo. The gizmos. (laughs) But it's the people and the roles and responsibilities. You know, I spent I spent 10 years or so, maybe even more at DHS um, and really functioned in a lot of interagency activity uh, and understood that if those who are responsible and those who are accountable are actually aware of their responsibility and their accountability, we close a lot of vulnerabilities. And that's a shift for me in this strategy. Thinking about cybersecurity in that way, I think is, is a throughput if you read between the lines. That's really helpful perspective. Yeah, Kemba, on the lift and shift theme, uh, where you're moving responsibility for cybersecurity to those best able to uh, bear it, Chris Inglis, and I think you also have talked about sort of the range of tools available to you to incentivize that lifting and shifting. And those include, you know, persuading people on a moral basis, uh, hoping to appeal to their self-interest, and then the disfavored tool, but the one that maybe has got the biggest throw weight, which is sort of the R-word, regulation. This strategy and comments that have been made about it, I think, reflect a very thoughtful, careful approach. Can you give us your sense of what the right role for regulation is for uh, ensuring cybersecurity and devices and products and services? Absolutely. So some like to think of regulation as a stick. Sometimes I like to think of it as a carrot, right? The idea of regulation, as we've articulated in the strategy, is really just to create a level playing field so that we cause investment in cybersecurity and we reward those who are investing in security, right? So that we not only cause minimum requirements, so bringing others to that playing field that aren't necessarily thinking through secure to market, right? They're thinking first to market. So bringing those up, but also causing those that are have been investing in cybersecurity and have had multiple requirements causing them to reshape their investments so that our regulatory environment is harmonized, that we offer an an opportunity for reciprocity where we can, so that any company that is regulated heavily only has to do something once, only has to prove something once. So they can take then, they can invest then not just in a large compliance scheme, right? We have cybersecurity schemes sometimes that is compliance focused, but also so that they can then invest appropriately in innovation to be able or find innovative means to be able to have better security built in, right? So we, you've heard Chris say this. We don't do cybersecurity for the sake of cybersecurity. We use it in order to cause other things to, to function better, right? So let's, let's invest in that innovative activity by leveling out the playing field and rewarding those who have minimum requirements in cybersecurity that find innovation in cybersecurity. Let's do that. And then let's do it in full consultation with those that are regulating and those that are regulated. So we get it right, right? So it's not just about causing minimum requirements or regulating for the sake of regulation. That's getting, getting it right means also harmonizing, having opportunity for reciprocity and doing it in full consultation with both the regulator and the regulated. David led you down the road uh, of the R word, and yeah. now I'd like to take you down the road of the L word, liability. Uh, we're all lawyers here in various stages of recovery, 
and yeah. I'm sure there's plenty <laughs> of plaintiffs lawyers listening. So in your mind, when the strategy talks about placing responsibility, does that include some sort of development of theories of recovery, liability, new statutes to put the actual legal burden on those more able to handle it? Or how, how do you see litigation figuring into this, if at all? You know, when you talk about liability, litigation figures in. But let me say this first. The idea of shifting liability, getting it right is, is a long-term process. It's not going to happen overnight. We know that. We're lawyers, right? But we've done this before. So Jim Dempsey wrote a good article, I think, in, in Lawfare yeah. that, that articulated yep. We've done it before. We did it in the auto manufacturing sector, right? We quoted a 1916 case, which now I've read. But the Cardozo opinion. The Cardozo opinion, yeah, absolutely. So we we can use even as far back as 1916, we can use that as an example for how do we how do we think about shifting liability. But also, there's a safe harbor, right? So we're all all lawyers. We've look for opportunities to find safe harbors for our clients. So we've done that before too. And one of the things that comes to mind is the Safety Act in the counterterrorism context. That posed, now it wasn't perfect. I understand it's been improving, but that posed an opportunity for a safe harbor, incentivizing innovation and without necessarily imposing a lot of liability. So we need, it needs to be a balanced approach. It needs to be thoughtful. And it's, it's going to take time. I mean, another example of Safe Harbor, and I know you haven't asked me this, but sort of I was a lawyer primarily in CFIUS for a long time. In there, again, we had it took a few statutory revisions to get that one right. But at the end of the day, that offered a Safe Harbor uh, so that you're looking at risk, figuring out with policymakers how to mitigate that risk in, in sensitive transactions. And in doing so, and in in executing those mitigation opportunities, companies then had a safe harbor of some sort. That that allowed us to work together for a common purpose. And that's that's what we're trying to do here. That's what we are articulating in the strategy. It's not just shifting liability, but it's also finding an opportunity to to provide a, a safe harbor for those that are willing to take on liability. And so apart from trading maybe safe harbors for new standards and requirements and doing that in a consultative fashion with the Mm -hmm. uh, providers who will be affected by both, the other theme I think you hit on under the rubric of of regulation was was simplicity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have the NSTAC recommendation to try to harmonize, for example, the many and varied cyber incident reporting obligations that are imposed either in statute like CERCIA or in various agency and department-specific rules and regs. Is that a, is that a high priority for you and or executed through you know, CISA or something to try to sort of smooth out the wrinkles and the idiosyncrasies in those reporting obligations and maybe other regulations too? So the short answer is yes, right? The thing that I've noticed over time is that companies have been spending a lot on compliance. We have a compliance market now. We want them investing in security and we need, we need to be highly consultative to make sure we get that right too. It's merely one of the tools that is articulated in the strategy to get us to, like I said before, 
an appropriate level, appropriate level of cybersecurity requirements, right? The finance sector, for example, has done an outstanding job. They've been pummeled. The financial sector is important, to be clear, but they've got, I don't know how many was the last quoted to me, but they've got a ton of regulators and a ton of regulations all trying to get to something similar. And then we have water, for example, that is under-regulated. At the end of the day, cybersecurity, some of our cybersecurity challenges are common across sectors. So I almost feel like it's disingenuous to try to think about this from sector to sector to sector. It's, it's because our digital ecosystem doesn't operate that way. We have common challenges. We should be able to harmonize how we find common solutions across all sectors, um, get to a, a, an appropriate playing field. Now, of course, for, there are going to be sectors that have unique requirements that, that are placed on top of that. But we need to get it right so that we don't have this sort of compliance market around cybersecurity. Instead, we start thinking about how do we invest in, cyber, in cybersecurity. That's really what we're trying to achieve. So we've started some, doing some of that. You've identified Circea, for example, Congress in its wisdom created the CERC. I sit on the CERC. We're trying to identify opportunities for sort of like a, a common application form if you have kids that are in college that have one form, one way to report what everybody really needs to understand. And then we find opportunities for the uniqueness in each sector to report, right? Harmonization really does take work. We've started doing that work. We're committed to getting it right and continuing to doing that work. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed 
from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I wanna tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Should we um, talk a little bit about how ONCD relates to some of the other key U.S. government cyber entities? You know, sure. Chris, in his confirmation hearings and then thereafter, talked about how he was a coach and Jen was the quarterback and we've all joked about how unity of effort is apparently going to be achieved with not just one, but two senior <laughs> White House officials on cyber issues. That's you and Anne. Can you talk a little bit about your relationship to those two entities and maybe some of the other players uh, in the cyber community within the government? Yeah, there's a lot of cyber to go around, right? <laughs> That's great. Uh, it really is. It's a target-rich environment. <laughs> target-rich environment, and it's and it's kind of cool from my perspective that we have so many leaders in cybersecurity, and many of us are women. And in, in, you know, I've been reflecting on that because it's Women's History Month. It's it's outstanding. 
our superpower is our diversity. Our meaning America's superpower is our diversity. And I don't mean just the obvious pieces of diversity. I mean diversity of perspective, diversity of experience. There's a lot to do. Anne is not the smartest person in the room. Jen is not the smartest person in the room. I am not the smartest person in the room. I can keep going down the list, right? But Chris and I, the way we functioned in our office as we co-led, was that we accepted that we have different perspectives, maybe even opposite perspectives, but we use that to our advantage to come up with fantastic geometric outcomes, right? So that one plus one equaled three, right? So that you have an outcome that's greater than the sum of its parts. I would like to see more of that. Now, my role here, you said, Chris, like the coach and quarterback analogy, and that's great. I grew up in San Francisco. My dad thought I was going to be a boy. I was a Joe Montana fan, Jerry Rice fan. I get that. So that's, that is absolutely still true. I like to think of it a little bit more com- in a complex way. I used to be a musician, so I like to think of it as a symphony, right? You have different movements. You have different uh, ranges of instruments. They all make sense in in the symphony if orchestrated properly. If not, it sounds like cacophony. But if it's done well, it's gorgeous, right? So we have a string section, a a percussion section, a brass section, et cetera. We have sometimes if, if you're listening to an aria, you've got voices, instruments. I view my role as having the privilege of being the conductor, so to speak, right? Making sure that all of the this talent moves in, in, in a way that the outcome is beautiful. So it's great that we have departments and agencies, civil society, academia, the private sector, all having a role in this space. The trick is to make it work well so that the end user right? The person listening to this orchestra, the person participating just by their mere presence can enjoy the benefits of it, can enjoy the digital economy in a way that is, that allows them to thrive and prosper. So I feel like that's my role. Then that, I do that, I can only do that in partnership with my counterparts across industry and across industry. I love this music analogy. I'm, I'm almost a musician. I'm a drummer. And more relevantly, uh, I have a, a software client who the CEO says that's how he views his superpower is being a conductor. Oh. But he says it becomes more difficult when everyone is the first chair. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so to torture that analogy one step further, yeah. how do you, and I know you're about to release a workforce strategy as well, but how do you think about for lack of a more subtle term, managing egos and making sure everyone contributes without kicking each other under the table too much. You know what? It's not everyone is required to agree. And if we can start with that presumption, but everybody has something to contribute, right? Like I said, leaning into our diversity of experience and perspective and using it to our advantage. We've developed that culture from the bottom up in the White House as a startup. We need to push that culture through all of our partners. But if we if we start with that premise that there is a there is contribution to be had by every single voice, even if we disagree, we're gonna have extraordinary outcomes. There are people that have bigger egos than others. It's, that's just the nature of people. People are in cyberspace 
right? Like I said, there are three elements to cyberspace. People are in it. We all have a part to play in this space. We all have the same goal. If you do conflict resolution, one of the principles is finding a common goal. We found it. We've articulated it in the strategies. That's why it's the national cybersecurity strategy and not an ONCD or an NSC or a CISA or a Microsoft, Google, whatever you want to call it, strategy. It is, it is the common thread here is that we are trying to have a defensible, resilient, and equitable digital ecosystem. Full stop. If you start with that common premise, you get a lot of thoughtful contribution, regardless of ego. So I'm going to go on with the music analogy too, and probably regret it. But <laughs> you know, you talked about a symphony and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, there's also the need sometimes for sheet music, and huh. one of the elements that I think many super nerdy uh, inside baseball fans have been waiting for is the executive order that will define more precisely the um, musical roles of you <laughs> and Anne. Now that the cyber strategy is out, can we expect that executive order tomorrow, day after tomorrow? Are you prepared to commit here and now <laughs> uh, that the president will be issuing that, Jake will be uh, issuing that uh, you know, instantaneously? Or wh when do you expect that? How important is that going to be to you in doing your job? You know, it is important. I'll give you that. But to pull the symphony analogy further, we've got different movements that we're working through, right? So the first movement was setting up the office. The second movement was establishing talent in our office. And boy, have we got it. The third movement, and in my mind, this is Beethoven's fifth, is the national cybersecurity strategy. Getting that done, getting it right and launching it. We've done that. We did that a week ago today, in fact. There's several other movements that have to take place. The next one on my mind, principally, is the implementation plan, because that's the fuel that's going to cause a strategy to be successful. It's not going to be successful without it. In fact, my favorite page, you didn't ask me, my favorite page, though, on the strategy is the last page, where we say, and we're going to be thoughtful and collaborate on the implementation plan for the strategy. And it's my hope that we make that public at some point. There's a, there are other movements here. Another movement is the workforce, the workforce awareness and education strategy. Like I said, people are at the core of this, of this national cybersecurity strategy. It, it deserves its own thoughtfulness, right? We've built the APIs into the workforce piece in the strategy. We are driving full speed ahead on the workforce. But then, like you helped point out, there's the roles and responsibilities piece of cyberspace. Who's responsible for what? Who's accountable for what? And that's not just true in the White House. That's true throughout the government. That is true in our digital ecosystem. But an eventual executive order will help ferret that out. When that's going to happen, what's in it is still to be seen. There's a lot of, there are a lot of smart people thinking this through. But that is one of the movements in this symphony. Okay, so you play a little jazz, maybe, uh, <laughs> improvising right now before you go to full-on symphony, which, I mean, you know, these things are a little bit chicken and egg. You want to get some experience implementing before maybe you uh, lock down the roles and responsibilities. So that that's a sensible thing, and I promise that's my last reference to music for the balance of this podcast. Well, I, I, did, I, did, I, did not, I did not make that promise, and so I have one more, and I know you're short on time, and we really appreciate how generous you've been, but <clears throat> I don't think we can leave this discussion with you without talking about 
the China threat. And here's my music hook to that. The mm -hmm. same CEO told me a story about how he was in China once and uh, he was talking about how he views software development as also a little bit like jazz that everybody needs to be able to improvise, but also work together. And apparently with a straight face, a Chinese person said, you know, we love your American jazz music, but how do you guys memorize all those solos? And so what I'm getting at is, do you feel that one of our competitive advantages against China is our ability to innovate and improvise? And, and more generally, how do you see the, the China cyber threat and our ability to counter it? So at the risk of, of sounding Pollyannish about this, and I want to make sure that you understand that we're aware of the China threat. We're, we're clear-eyed about it. We understand their intent and their capability. We track that. We follow that. We, we think about that. But right now we're focused on making what we have defensible, regardless of the threat, and making sure that we are resilient, that we're making the right strategic investments, right? Regardless of the threat. It's China today, it could be someplace or something else tomorrow, it could be a natural disaster, right? We need to, instead of allowing the threat actor set our agenda, instead of getting even better at incident response, Right. We need to make sure that our critical infrastructure, our digital ecosystem is defensible, that everybody understands their role in this space and making sure that every part of cyberspace is resilient because the attacks are going to happen. I'm I'm aware of that. Right. The threats are always going to be there. There is always going to be a nation state or a cyber criminal gang or something that has the appropriate level of intent and the appropriate level of capability to come after us for whatever motivation. They don't like our, our democratic nature. They don't, but we need to really make what we have defensible. And that's done in the international context, right? We understand that our digital ecosystem, I know this is the national cybersecurity strategy, is only as secure as anyone else's. And so focusing, that's where we're focusing. That's what we are committing to. So now in the details, right? The strategy calls for ways that we can lean into what's unique and, and special about the United States. One, one of our superpowers is our diversity. So that's where the workforce strategy works in. But we really need to recommit to innovation, really commit to our R&D capability. I mean, we're thinking about opportunities in quantum and clean energy and digital identity and artificial in intelligence. We're recommitting to investments in technical standards. Wouldn't it be awesome if we harmonize technical standards, right? We talk about harmonizing regulation. What could happen if we did that? But yes, so thank you for the question. And I'm sorry that I, I uh, pivoted away from China specifically. So I'm aware of that threat, but it's really the opportunity that I'm focused on. Kemba, maybe last question, but what's what's that's really interesting about encouraging R&D in a sort of a, a you know, long-term industrial policy approach. Are you suggesting or do you believe that, you know, government should be playing a significant role there in creating incentives and imposing obligations in the, you know, combination of regulatory carrots and sticks that we talked about earlier? Is there a role for government or for your office in driving the private sector towards appropriate long-term investments and the like? That's actually an easy question. The answer is yes. Right. So we're, we follow the president's lead. This is the this is one of the reasons why we are established in the White House. The bipartisan infrastructure law, we are we are 
fully thinking through building out broadband, building out roads and bridges, which have sensors in them, by the way, but making sure that we are investing or allow giving states the opportunity when they ask for grants that they are investing in cyber policy and plans as we build out, right? The Inflation Reduction Act has an, an enormous amount of money there for building our clean energy economy for, for electric vehicles and accessories. We used, and this is on the White House website, so I'm not divulging much different here, but we used our convening power to talk to that industry, to help them understand what the risks are, to help them understand that it is really a capital expenditure opportunity to reduce business risk and costs later, right? As we build out our clean energy plan. It's a Chips and Science Act. The president was wise in that one. And particularly, we sit on the Chips Steering Council, which is great. But what's innovative about that, from my perspective, and remember, I was in CFIUS for a very long time, so Chips Semiconductor chips have always been a concern of mine from a national security perspective, but it's also a trade opportunity. It's a it's an innovation opportunity, but there is a kernel in there about workforce development. There's an there's a there's an acknowledgement that we need the right capabilities in the people if we're going to be successful in the ultimate goal of the Chips and Science Act. We're one part of this effort, we're an important part, and we're following the president's lead here. So the short answer to your question is yes. Well, Kemba, our, our, our listeners could listen to this for hours, but I know you have a day job. Um, so you. thanks again very much for, for participating with us. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll have you on again in a year and you can tell us how we're doing on all this stuff. I would be happy to. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and your audio engineer for this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.